0: Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, aka Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. I hope you're well. I have traveled for the first time since the pandemic began, so I'm recording this in my hotel room in the wee hours of a different time zone. The sound quality will likely be different because I forgot to pack the mic I usually use. It feels very weird to be somewhere else, but it's also nice to have a change of scenery. Today we have another tragedy by Seneca, Hercules' Furens, which roughly translates to the madness of Hercules. As we've seen in much of Seneca, it is based on a play by Euripides, his Heracles, so if you remember the episode about that play, there won't be too many plot twists as we cover Seneca's version. As with most of Seneca's tragedies, Hercules Furens was written around 54 CE and may or may not have been performed for private audiences, but we have no records of any public productions, so it's possible it was never intended to be anything other than a method of teaching about Stoicism. I am once again working from the lovely, modern Emily Wilson translation. I'm going to be sad when I run out of the translations in her text. Not that there's anything wrong with the Ella Isabel Harris translations that I bought to round out Seneca's tragedies. I just prefer something newer and Wilson's translation is excellent. Anyway, the characters should be familiar. We of course have Hercules and his father, or rather, stepfather, Amphitryon, and Hercules' wife, Megara, and Theseus, king of Athens, and Lycus, the current king of Thebes. And where there's Hercules, the meddling god is going to be Hera if you're Greek, but Seneca wasn't, so this play uses her Latin name, Juno. And the chorus is comprised of the people of Thebes, which makes sense because that is where the play is set. So with that bit of background that I can offer, we'll take a short break before going over the plot. The play opens with Juno. She starts with quite the statement. She's Jupiter's sister. Just his sister nothing more. No longer his wife. She's leaving him to all his other women. And then she goes into great detail about Jupiter's victims, ending with Alcmena. And who is Alcmena's son? Hercules, of course. Juno then goes into great detail about how much she hates Hercules and everything she's done in his life to try and kill him. But no, he just keeps getting stronger and stronger, even on his current mission to the Underworld stupid Hercules. But Juno's not done with him yet. Clearly, the only thing that can stop Hercules is Hercules. So that's who Juno will use next. She'll call on the Furies, madness, and passion to assist her. And once he's gone mad, she'll even help him herself. And having provided that prologue, Juno exits. The chorus enters and sings of the dawn. It's all very pastoral. Much better than city life. And as for Hercules, if you think city life is bad, the choices Hercules has made are even worse than the choice to live in the city. Far better to live a quiet life in obscurity than to shoot for the stars. Amphitryon, Megara, and the children enter. Amphitryon's monologues a lament about how Hercules, uh, sorry, about Hercules and all the ways Juno has caused problems, including details about several of those famous 12 labors. And despite all of this, Thebes is still a miserable place. You see, Lycus has killed Creon, Megara's father, and usurped the throne while Hercules has been away completing his labors. Megara joins the lament, praying for her husband's safe return even though she has this sense of foreboding that Hercules will drag them all down with him. Or Maybe I should call that foreshadowing? Amphitryon tries to comfort her, but neither of them truly believe that Hercules can survive all the challenges thrown at him. Lycus enters and introduces himself to the audience. Now that he's killed Creon, he plans to solidify his claim on the throne by marrying Megara. He tries to woo her. She is not interested. So he changes tactics and tells her that she doesn't have a choice. She says she'd rather die. Getting nowhere with Megara, Lycus turns on Amphitryon, saying that Hercules isn't really Jupiter's son, so all these trials aren't going to get him into Olympus. But Amphitryon doesn't care that Jupiter is his son's birth father. He loves him anyway. And Jupiter's illegitimate sons always have trials, which Amphitryon describes. Eventually, Lycus throws up his hands, commands Megara to marry him, and exists to perform a sacrifice to Neptune. The chorus sings some more about how a life of fame is not a life of peace. And they also bring up how Orpheus lost his wife, so foreshadowing much. Hercules finally enters along with Theseus. He describes how he captured Cerberus. Amphitryon is shocked to see his son alive. He tells Hercules about Lycus's schemes. Hercules immediately runs off to kill Lycus. Theseus then takes up the narrative, providing a very lengthy description of what all happened in the underworld. Pages and PAGES of description. The chorus sings a bit more about the underworld, picking up Theseus' theme. Hercules returns and describes how he killed Lycus before praying that peace will finally come to earth, but that's not what he winds up seeing. He sees the sun disappear. The giant storming Olympus, the Furies. Amphitryon tries to restrain him, but Hercules is Hercules, and he kills Megara and the children, with Amphitryon providing, shall we say, color commentary. It's gory. Thinking he has made a sacrifice to Juno, Hercules eventually collapses. The chorus calls on the gods to restore Hercules' senses and to bring him peace. Hercules wakes up and doesn't remember what happened. He asks Amphitryon and Theseus who killed his wife and children, but they don't answer. Eventually, Hercules realizes that it was him. He says that he'll kill himself so that he can join them. Amphitryon begs him not to, saying that he'll die too if he has to watch his son die. And Theseus provides an additional voice of reason. Hercules will come with Theseus to Athens and there be washed clean of these murders. And that is where the play ends. In one of the commentaries I've referenced for this episode, Neil Bernstein makes a point that I might not have considered, and which is most fitting given the fact that we haven't finished the Aeneid yet. Virgil predates Seneca, so by starting this play with Juno, Seneca reminds his audience of that earlier work by Rome's favorite poet. Just as Juno does Everything in her power to stop Aeneas. The Juno we meet in Hercules Furens will do everything in her power to stop Hercules. Juno's prologue shows us the evergreen problem with Juno, or Hera if you're Greek. She's angry at Zeus or Jupiter, but as she describes his victims, she lays the fault at the women's feet. It's not Jupiter's fault that he disguised himself as Amphitryon so that he could sleep with Alcmena, thus conceiving Hercules. No, it's Hercules' fault that his father is Jupiter. But this is also where we see the difficulty of immortality. Juno and Jupiter have to put up with each other forever. Literally. The mortal women he rapes will die eventually. So will most of their offspring. There are some who become gods, obviously, but most of his children are mortal. The mortals will wind up in the underworld, but Juno and Jupiter... They're stuck with each other. Now, because of the time in which all of these myths arose, the women would probably get the blame no matter what, because patriarchy. Am I right? But the issue of immortality adds a new wrinkle. Is Juno this vengeful because of Zeus's relate Jupiter's relationships? I keep calling him Zeus, or is she this vengeful? because she needs to take the blame out on somebody and if she takes it out on on jupiter how's she going to live with that for the rest of eternity not that seneca is all that nuanced on this point i mean if there's if there's one thing we know about seneca by now he shuns nuance so what do you think of hercules tirans what about that last act after the murders when hercules realizes what he's done Pop over to the blog and share. It's at triumvirclio.school.blog. The URL and maybe a link are in the show notes. The link to my Patreon is there too, should you feel so inclined. In the next episode, we'll cover book nine of the Aeneid. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.